Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. After a week off, we are back. Sorry we had to take a week off. That was just a miscalculation on my part, but it was worth it. We uh, fixed a few bugs, hopefully got some of the uh, subscription errors taken care of. We're also uploading all of the podcasts to SoundCloud, so that will be up soon, so people have more options for downloading. And um, another thing that I'm kind of excited about, I started a, uh, a Twitter account for the Here We Are podcast. I put it off until now because I wasn't... Uh, Twitter accounts for podcasts aren't necessarily the most popular uh, thing in the world, and I already have my Twitter account at Shane Comedy, and I didn't want to add more stuff. But then I thought it would be great to have a podcast account where I just follow all of the past guests um, and uh, maybe eventually I'll do some um, broader science news stuff as well but but uh, I'm just going to be kind of retweeting some of their interesting research and like for example I just retweeted this awesome story um, from James Pennebaker you may remember him talking about the secret life of pronouns it was it was uh Really, really great episode, and there was a article um, in. Let's see, what was it? It was all about um, what speech patterns say about the presidential candidates. This is in the Wall Street Journal, and just thought it was fascinating. If you listen to that episode, you already get what it's about. Um, very cool stuff. So, so anytime I see something cool like that, I'm going to retweet it. So rather than um, my, my silly jokes and retweeting other comedians, silly jokes on my, on my, uh, regular Twitter account at Shane comedy, which please still follow that for silliness, um, and show updates and everything else. Uh, you can follow at here. We pod is the Twitter handle and, um, it'll be a place for all my sciencey tweets and, sciencey fun so go and check that out also um i've been I, I used the week off i've been working hard on on putting together 
the very first ever live Here We Are podcast means there's going to be a live audience. There's going to be three guests on stage. It will be at in Wilmington, North Carolina, as part of the Cape Fear Comedy Festival. And so if you know anyone around there or if you are around there, please um, spread the word for me. It is uh, going to be great, It's and it's going to be a free show as well at the Dead Crow Comedy Club. And then afterwards, just a half a block down the street at City Stage, also for the Cape Fear Comedy Festival, I'll be performing a good trip. Uh, my show all about psychedelics, and if you happen to live in the southeast, not only will I be doing that in Wilmington, I'll be doing it in Charlotte, Asheville, Atlanta, Birmingham, Louisville, and I'm adding all sorts of of uh, more dates in, in Texas, and I'm going to make New Orleans happen this summer, and uh, we're hoping to put together a big, big tour of that for the fall. More info to come, but um, coming up at the end of this month, I'll be all over the Southeast, so please go to shanemoss.com to check more of that out. And we are back with a fantastic episode talking about primates today. Who doesn't like that? Ape talk, monkey talk, awesome. Um, so I hope you enjoy. I hope you check out the new Twitter account, Here We Pod. And, and e- even, if, um, even if you aren't into Twitter, you have a Twitter account and, um, or, or you're listening and you're like, well, I have a Twitter account, but I'm not terribly interested in that. Well, help me out and follow it anyway, and because it's brand new, and I want to give the illusion of popularity so more people will follow it, um, and retweet, spread the word for me, all that good stuff. Thank you guys for always being so helpful and writing reviews and everything else that really helps out the show. We're growing. I've been getting some numbers back lately, and um, and especially over the last few months, um, the podcast has really been getting a lot more listeners, so thank you for spreading the word for me, and lots more great stuff to come. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have a primatologist on the show, which I'm very excited about, been waiting a long time, can't believe I haven't had a primatologist on before, so this is a very special, fun day for me and for you guys. Listening, I'm talking with grad student, uh, with a grad student at the Department of Anthropology at University of Oregon, Clary Boos. Yes. Everybody, I, this, uh, that was my third introduction. <laughs> I, I, my listeners are already very familiar with me butchering no uh, intros over I'm very and over familiar again. with having my name butchered. <laughs> um, so you study apes. I'm very careful yes. to say yes. apes because this is, are, are you, uh, does every primatologist get worked up when, when uh, someone says monkey yeah when they call a chimp a monkey yeah we get a little worked up about it and we say apes don't have tails (laughs) yeah yeah. they don't have tails among other things it's like the it's like the one obvious thing i think that people can focus on um the most distinguishing feature between 
monkeys and apes is the fact that apes don't have tails. Um, but really, the more I think interesting things are, you know, behavioral, of course, right. differences between. But uh, yeah, I think monkeys is more fun to say. Yeah. Um, I'll sometimes, if I'm on stage, even if I'm talking about apes, I'll say monkey because it's oh. a funnier word. Mm. And then, and then I'll have um, like. I did a show for a whole room full of psychologists before, and they were all very upset with me for and, and like and explained it like I didn't know that apes uh, didn't right, have tails right, and stuff. Right. It was uh, and it was amusing to me. So I still sometimes do it. So I apologize. How did you get into studying apes? Wow. Um, I have always loved animals. I grew up loving animals. And when I went to college the first time, um, I sort of was lost in my direction. I kind of thought maybe I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wasn't quite sure. Um, And I was on that track, you know, taking all the pre-vet classes and all the kids that were headed to either vet school or med school. And I ended up taking a course from a woman who taught in the psychology department, Sally Boysen, and she had a lab, it was called the Chimp Lab, where she did behavioral research on chimpanzees and capuchin monkeys, and you could do sort of a rotation, um, we, we called it an independent study, but really what it was was a rotation in volunteering, you know, cleaning cages, cutting food, and all that kind of stuff. And I signed up for it, and on my very first day, I'll never forget this, my very first day, I came in, it was early in the morning, kind of stormy, and I came into the front office, and I was, I, like, basically had beaten everyone there. There was one other person there, and and they're like, just sit here and wait, we'll deal with you in a second, you early person, you know, (laughs) you on-time person, or whatever. (laughs) So I'm sitting in the office, and Dr. Boysen came in through the front door, um, and you know, it was very windy and she's kind of a very exuberant person anyway. And, you know, she came in in a whirlwind and she had two baby chimpanzees clinging to her. And she put one of them down right in front of me. And he looked at me and he climbed up on this, I was sitting on this bench and it was, it was kind of chilly. I think it was March in Ohio. So it was cold, climbed up on this bench, sat down, looked at me and kind of snuggled up to me, kind of like sidled up ne- right next to me. And it was my first day. I didn't know anything. I didn't want to do anything wrong. So I didn't do anything. I just kind of was like, okay, you know, be calm. He was small. You know, I wasn't afraid. It was clear he was a baby. And um, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and, you know, things are happening and I, I'm not even paying attention. I can't even listen. You know, I'm just so obsessed with the fact that this little guy is sitting right here next to me. And so um, I remember sticking my hand out and I I touched his ear <laughs> and I thought, Oh, it's, it's very soft. <laughs> and, uh, that was it. I mean, I was hooked. I was hooked. They are so well, those monkey ears. Inc- get everybody. <laughs> They're so incredibly intoxicating from the minute that you are face to face with one. It's absolutely clear that you are not, you're, you're looking at a species just like you. It's not, it's not a dog. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. nothing like a domestic animal that you're most likely to be familiar with. They are, I mean, they're they're like these little furry people that don't necessarily speak all of our language. You know, I mean, they're so much like us. And so from, you know, that moment forward, I just everything, my whole focus in life was to, you know, do something you know, in the field of primatology, I was, I was so hooked. Mm. And that actually, I mean, your viewers can't see this, obviously, or your listeners can't see this, but that's him. Six years later, he and I outside having, having a little moment, a little picture of us. Aww. His name was, um, his name is Harper. Hmm. 
I um, I've, I don't think I've ever got to hold a... Oh, I did. Um, I once got to hold um, the, a famous Hollywood monkey called Crystal uh, the Monkey, who was in, like, Night at the Museum and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, very long story but i got pictures of of her hitting my head and stuff playfully and yeah. it, it was wonderful i held a koala bear one time and as pleasant Ooh. as that was they have horrible claws that uh that yeah. hurt even when they aren't trying to rip your face off so uh yeah i prefer uh, primates yeah. <laughs> really see i think i would yeah. take my chances with a koala over a capuchin to be honest really oh yeah are they sure. mean no, no that, it's funny that you ask that. A lot of people ask me when they know that I've had this this kind of contact with with primates like chimpanzees, and you know, we we also had at one point we had eleven. There were eleven chimpanzees and and four capuchin monkeys at our facility. Pointing at the picture, um, uh, and people ask, "Well, aren't you, you know, aren't you afraid? Aren't you, aren't they mean?" And I'm like, "They're mean like people are mean. Sometimes they get riled up and they get pissed off, and you know, they're upset about something, and they're gonna they're gonna have a moment where they need to vent and take it out." You know, some of them are kind of just have a nastier personality than others. Some don't have a mean bone in their body, and they're just like a thousand times better person than I am, you know? <laughs> so it's it's really like, it's the whole range. The thing about them is that they are so intelligent, and that's what makes them slightly scary. They're able to, you know, creatively <laughs> uh, come at you if they so desire. Yeah, I... I think everyone, ever since the whole story of of the woman getting her face ripped off by a chimp or whatever, yeah, that was and 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 it was on Oprah and everything yeah. else, and now and people really turned on on it, chimps. Yeah. So if if you're gonna if you're gonna have a um, a pet primate, what what what's the best? I want one of those little finger monkeys. A finger monkey. Uh, you know those things? Yeah, what, they're called, what are pig, they called? pygmy marmosets. Of course you know. <laughs> they're pygmy. Hey, have you ever primatologist? Have you ever heard of this finger yeah. monkey thing before? What are they called? Pygmy marmosets, and the the very famous pictures of them clinging to things like toothbrushes and people's fingers. Those are the infants. Uh. And um, I, again, I, I I can't state. <laughs> hard enough <laughs> that primates are probably the single worst wild animal to have as a pet for I, so many reasons. The most important to me is their own psychological welfare. Right. They really need to be living in their own kinds of social groups that they have, you know, eating the foods that they were evolved to eat, um, you know, foraging, spending their day doing what they do in the wild or they, they have a really, really hard time. You can't it's just a real challenge. sit on the couch and watch movies with some cheetos and you're you can't you know well the cheetos they would probably <laughs> there, there are probably a lot of species that that would like uh they love their junk food they know what salt sugar and fat is for yeah. sure <laughs> they'll go after that but uh no they really um are not meant and and in the case uh, of poor charla nash you know um being so horrifically injured yeah um if there's any silver lining um it's that you know it did bring awareness to how dangerous they are you know, and because the woman that owned him had had him since he was an infant, if I remember correctly, and um, he he knew Charla, and and it didn't it didn't matter. You know, he was an adolescent male. He they you know do a lot of aggressive behavior as part of their normal development, and when you know they're frustrated, 
from mm-hmm. being kept alone and in solitude. They don't get to explore, climb, run, get out that energy, you know, or have a healthy outlet for that aggression. It's going to come out. Yeah, I, um, I, I'm guilty of having a lot of uh, <laughs> primate pet dreams really? but i would never i yeah. know better you know better that's i know good. better that's good. but you know that night i'll is, never stop yeah. fantasizing about having a pet monkey i think the reality of it even if the conditions were good for well, the know. ape or, or, or whatever i end up getting eventually even even if even if the primate was happy i think that it would um it would it, it lose some of its uh novelty and appeal after a while like the oh, the trainer yeah. that had the the um crystal the monkey mm-hmm. told me that because it was like he's having to do backflips and teaching it new tricks for movies all the time and he said that it's always with him like it goes mm-hmm. in it's a hotel 24 oh, 7 yeah. just never it's ever a social, it's a social group and you know may, maybe it sounds like i don't obviously know about those circumstances but maybe it's you know the only individual that the crystal identifies with as being part of her is it right. a she or her yeah, social yeah. group and so you know they don't like to be separated and it is it's like having a very needy very needy child yeah 24/7. i have commitment issues yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah why don't you start with like a girlfriend or a dog <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> tried both of those failed so far oh, so i don't no. so i don't think that i'm i'm quite ready for primates so what is the chimp lab like then what, what how do you how do they create an environment that's healthy? Yeah, you know, I really appreciate you asking that. So the the Chimp Lab was established in the 80s by Dr. Boysen and her um, a former colleague. And uh, it was, was absolutely not ideal. You know, ideally they would have just acres and acres and acres of, you know, wooded forest to live in and forage in and exist in and only come see us when they felt like it. That that would have been ideal. Yeah, and I want a mansion. Get used to it, Tim. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> well, not, nothing in life is perfect. I don't know, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, you're uh, <laughs> not, not a, uh, the same sort of situation. But, not um, a fair uh, metaphor there? No, okay. I don't not think so. Not a fair so. comparison. All right. um, but, however, you know, although we did not have the ideal space, um, myself and my my colleague at, uh, at the time, Stephanie Harris, um, she's an amazing lady. Hey, Steph. Um, she and I did our absolute very best to make every single one of their days as enriching and as interesting and as exciting um, and as healthy and safe as possible. Um, and it was a full-time job and a half just to do that, just to come up with things that would stimulate them in a natural way in a healthy way and in a safe way. And it it was, you know, it was nonstop. It seems like that would be a very, very difficult task. It seems like uh, primates are very busy, curious uh, creatures. Are are they into, uh, are they into video games? It seems like I always, I always see things with like them with joysticks or. Well, yeah. So they are, the, the, the chimpanzees at the Ohio state lab, um, they were trained to interact on a touch frame, um, a computer system that had a touch frame. And so they could, you know, do things um, on that. We did some some language uh, studies with them, some referential stuff, um, uh, referential vocalization studies. And they were remarkably good at it. And every now and then when we would close down at night, I would forget to switch off 
their access to the touchscreen. And if Sheba had access to the room, if she had overnight access to the room that, that where the touchscreen was housed, I'd come in and there would be like 700 Internet Explorer windows open. Because this was several years ago, right? So it was Internet Explorer. So there were like several hundred Internet Explorer windows open and she would just do stuff until the computer would basically say, I'm freaking out, I can't handle this anymore. And I don't know, she... Watching porn and no, stuff? No, <laughs> she never got anywhere. I mean, she would just open windows and yeah. randomly click things, you know. And hmm. um, it was just fun for her to, you know, see things change on the screen, I guess, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, humans are like that, too. I think they would watch porn, by the way, though. I think, I think probably, they've done studies yeah. where they have, um, they, they'll, like, give chimps juice to turn the porn off or switch the channel or something. They'll, <laughs> yeah. they'll, they'll show like female, um, uh, yeah, there've been and- some studies and I don't know the species exactly. I feel like I should know this, um, where they'll, uh, the, where they'll say, okay, you know, you can take a cut in your juice reward for a longer look at a female's bottom. Yeah, yeah. Is what, is what the paradigm is. Um, and so they'll, they'll do that. The males, yeah. of course. But um, I think that, uh, I, think the, I think the chimps would definitely watch human pornography, probably. They liked watching television. We used that a little bit as mm-hmm. part of their enrichment. Well, I guess it's what's nice about being uh, human is I get both the juice box and the porn. You can, I can have, have all both the juice at boxes. the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, and now there's this memory of, um, I think it was on NPR or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, someone played it for me. It was someone was trying to, it was years ago, they were trying to raise, I think it was a chimp, as a human from the mm-hmm. beginning, and it was like, mm-hmm. it was a scientist that lived with mm-hmm. them and was yeah. like part of the family and tried to yeah. raise her like a daughter. Partners, and yeah. she eventually, oh, is that? Yeah. And, and, and they said that they would go out when, when she started getting um, sexually mature and started like yeah. playing with herself or whatever, rubbing herself. They went out and got like Playgirl magazine. Yeah. And so so she was, for her, they were attracted to, or she she was attracted to humans. Yeah, her name was Lucy. And, um, yeah. yeah. See, again, the, the, it's both interesting from a scientific perspective and sad at the same time Mm -hmm. um, that if you raise them, as a human or in a, with a, lo- a lot of contact with humans, they almost don't have a clear sense that we are a completely separate species and they will develop a sexual attraction to humans as they turn into adolescents, hmm. unfortunately, um, instead of wanting to be... Um, or instead of being exclusively attracted to their own species. And that, that can happen in, in not just chimpanzees, it can happen in gorillas, if, seen it happen in gorillas um that is scary a lot of other yeah right. i wouldn't want a gorilla a male, to be male gorilla interested in me. you is yeah. slightly intimidating yeah, i'm not gonna yeah. lie yeah. <laughs> but um you know fortunately uh, they aren't hung very well but no no the gorillas have um rather rather small penises <laughs> yeah definitely chimpanzees and bonobos actually have very slender penises but they're very long incredibly long and if you look at the female anatomy they have very large sexual swellings and so they actually 
have to deliver their package quite far. And so having that length of a penis is almost like a rifle being able to shoot it, you know, Hmm. as far as possible uh, in there. Yeah, there's um, because you study bonobos as well now, right? Mm -hmm. And and bonobos are like the hot primate right (laughs) now. I I feel like there's a a lot of excitement. They've always been the sexy primate, always. Yeah, Yeah. well, I I feel because bonobos weren't even discovered until somewhat recently, right? Yeah, more recently recognized. Yeah, as a separate species from chimpanzees because they are endemic to a very small region in the Democratic Republic of Congo that's quite difficult to um, get into when circumstances are ideal, um, let alone when they're not in in terms of what's going on with the surrounding humans and the human population. Um, And so, uh, yeah, you know, it's a race against time to learn about as much about them as we possibly can um, before they're gone, because they do stand in contrast in contrast to chimpanzees in a lot of pretty remarkable ways. And one of the ways, of course, just been highly publicized, is their right. use of sexual activity outside of sh- you know strictly reproductive, you know, functioning. Yeah, it seems it seems like um, uh, the the news runs these very sexy stories about how bonobos are just having this wild orgy all the time, and how it's like chimps are the are where we got our war instinct, yeah. and the bonobos are our 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 capacity for uh, cooperation, and and uh, you know we, and, we could be making love instead of wars. It's yeah, sort of, it's it's. Uh, it, is that all uh, overblown a little bit? You know, it's interesting. It's somewhat of a false paradigm. the The differences between the two species. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, I'll just tell you a little story. So I worked with the chimpanzees for about six years, and um, the center closed down because of lack of funding, which was a horribly sad um, thing that happened to them. The chimps went through um, a really tough time. Some of them died um, in the process of getting to where the remaining individuals are now at Chimp Haven. What's Chimp Haven? It is a sanctuary for chimpanzees that were used in research all across the country. So Mm. um, in labs like the one that I worked in, as well as different labs funded by NIH and NIMH, NSF, um, those sorts of facilities. Is it also like people like me who keep on losing their capuchin? (laughs) There are a couple of people. There are, they do have some chimps, I believe, there that um, were privately owned, that Mm. were part of the entertainment industry, um, that grew grew up as they do um, and aren't manageable anymore. Um, So there are, there's a smattering of um, chimps from all over the place, you know, And, and the sad thing is there's, God knows how many really languishing in people's basements, in their garages, you know, as roadside attractions. Uh, it's it's really quite terrible. And, and Steve Weiss um, is part of a project that's doing um, really good work to try to eliminate uh, chimpanzees as something that can be owned, as, as being property, to give them some sort of basic right, almost like a human right, so that they can't be subjected to those types of circumstances given that they have the whole range of feelings and emotions that we have and are pretty cognizant of their situation, which makes it especially heartbreaking. So a little shout out to them as well. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've seen, I'm trying to recall what they are, but I've, I've seen a couple of things. It seems like that's starting to be, there's more and more trials about what you're able to do. Yeah. Um, with primates. It is interesting. Um, the, the, uh, 
the moral dynamics of of what we have a right to do um yeah uh, that must be something that you have to deal a lot with in in your work right is there is there like a lot of is it a very highly regulated um thing because i know you know I've, I've talked with someone who researches flies. Yeah, and you, you, yeah. You don't, you don't Drosophila have to, doesn't have the same <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of... You don't really have to worry about... You know, your, they have to submit their aisle cooks just like the rest of us, I imagine. Um, real quick, I just want I just want to say that the project I was referring to is called the Non-Human Rights uh, Project. Uh, I wanted to make sure I said that. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, so... Uh, we did at the Chimp Lab at Ohio State, we were regulated by the USDA as well as um, uh, within our own institution. We had a regulatory agency and um, there were very strict rules on, um, you know, cleanliness and temperature settings and uh, space, which was woefully inadequate. I mean, the, the space limits that they allow you to have are ridiculous. They're, mm. they're way too small. We thankfully had more than that. I wish we had had so much more. Right. We didn't. We did the best with what we had. Um, so we were highly regulated in that sense, but a lot of, a lot of work, I think, needs to be done in, in making sure that their mental health is also being addressed in the same way, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with biomedical facilities. Uh, I don't have any experience um, working with biomedical facilities. So I know it's a lot, uh, there's a lot of regulation that goes into using animals for that type of research that's very invasive, where you're actually using the parts of their body to test things. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's it's not just about their physical body, it's also about their mental health and well-being and that We've got some strides to go there. The work Can't you that, just give them angry birds, though? Can you just That's give them some video games? You know what's interesting is the, the Chimp Center closed down in 2006, and I often think with the advances in technology and how things are a lot cheaper now, tablets and, you know, whether or not we could have made these sort of indestructible carrying cases for them and could have passed out tablets to them to play video games on for short periods of time, you know, mm-hmm. got to limit the screen time. Can't have too much screen time. Right. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I often think about how different our enrichment would look now, uh, as opposed to it was, you know, 10 years ago, it was, you know, well, we, we did a lot of shopping at the dollar store. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it'd be it'd just be interesting to know if uh, if any of these animals would develop, or if any of these chimps or whatever would develop ADD um, or ADHD or whatever <laughs> in the, in the same way that uh, young adolescent males seem to in humans. Uh, yeah, with, you know, adolescents are adolescents. There is nothing more annoying. And- <laughs> just aggravating and awful than an adolescent chimpanzee or bonobo so did oh, it's, you had chimps oh and it, so you've probably had chimps and bonobos that you just like couldn't stand oh there's uh, definitely individuals <laughs> that i can't stand and i won't say who they are because <laughs> they might be listening no yeah they might be listening <laughs> their caretakers might be listening um that actually i don't think there there aren't any bonobos that i i absolutely cannot stand uh there's definitely a chimp i Dislike a little bit, <laughs> yeah. but she, uh, you know, she deserves to be happy and healthy, just like everyone else. Right. Uh, but she definitely is. She's kind of a little shit. But um, so 
getting back to your question about regulation and um, how that goes, so at the Chimp Center, you know, we, we, we had those regulatory institutions. Now my work with the bonobos is done at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium, which is regulated by, again, the USDA and also the AZA, um, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And Columbus does an absolutely fantastic, amazing, amazing job taking care of their bonobos. They have a wonderful staff that is really knowledgeable and truly cares about each one of them as an individual, which is Really, really Where is this again? important. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. They yeah, don't they, they have, have, they have one of the zoo. biggest or, or best zoos in the country, isn't it? The best. <laughs> what, wasn't it? It wasn't. Didn't some famous guy found it or something? Jack like some, Hanna is yeah. associated, yes, oh, with yeah, the zoo, yeah, and he will often do the talk show circuit with a couple of you know the, some baby animals that right. they use for outreach and that sort of thing. Hmm. Different you know species. Yeah. So I. My work now that I do is is all with the Columbus Zoo, and and they handle for the most part the the regulatory part, and and I don't do anything with them that disrupts any part of their day. So I just show up and I watch them all day long, and they go about their business, and then they just have a normal day, and I write down everything I see. Are they very curious about you, or do they just? Oh yeah, for sure. They know a researcher when they see one. You know, a lot of people come and watch them, and so they're instantly sort of like, oh. I wonder how long you're going to be here, <laughs> you know, and over time they get really quite attached to you through the glass. It's pretty amazing. Um, uh, some more than others, some don't care at all if you're there. Although I have to say there, there's, there's a male there that I didn't think I had been going for a couple of years and I didn't even think he could pick me out of a crowd. He never looked at me, nothing. Something <laughs> scared him one day and he made a beeline to me and jumped at the glass, fear grimacing and screaming and gesturing at me like, help me, help me. And I thought, oh my God, I didn't even know you knew I existed. And I felt terrible because I couldn't do anything for him. Hmm. I can't even remember what it was that, that startled him, but he was, he was very scared for a second and, and, you know, it came to me and I thought, oh wow, you know, so they're definitely aware that you're that you're there. Do they ever like try to show off or anything oh. like that? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. They, they definitely do. They'll display and they'll come up and, um, when you're, when you first start watching them and this was the same as when you first start working with really any primates, but chimpanzees and bonobos in particular, they almost go through when you're a caretaker, when you, when you care for them or if you're a researcher that works closely with them, they'll put you through this like hazing time and the, and and the and the length of time is different for every individual. You know, some of them might haze you for a couple of weeks and then you're in. Hmm. You know, and they're gauging your reaction. Like, what kind of person are you going to be? How are you going to react to me doing this to you? You know, are you going to get angry? Are you going to get sad? Are you going to get scared? Does it bother you at all? And so um, they put you through that process, and then eventually, and you you hope they kind of accept you almost as this ancillary or outside group member if that makes any sense you know you're kind of in you're kind of part of it Hmm. you know and in the case of columbus i um only go in the summer and uh the first the first year i went they all got you know very very sort of attached to you through the glass and you know they come say hi to you every morning and they're they'll sit with you sometimes and you know want to see what you're doing and what you're writing or what's in your bag or what are you eating for lunch today that looks that's a very important that's a very important question and um i left and i came back here for the for the uh, the school year when i went back the following year 
boy, they were pissed off at me. They were like, you don't just get to come and go (laughs) willy-nilly in and out of our lives like this. And they were so cold. I had the coldest shoulder for the longest time. It actually made me A lot of trust issues. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, they, you know, put you through the the ring or the, a test, you know, mm-hmm. to accept you. And if you've been accepted, it can be really hard on them when you, when you leave. Abandoned, yeah. Yeah, it is. It can be quite hmm. hard. Um, so, so what was the work that you did with language and vocalization? Uh, so as a research associate, I was responsible for collecting the data, uh, uh, as part of that project. Um, and the referential work that was done, um, to my knowledge, was not published, although something very similar has been published by Katie Slocum um, since then, so I don't think I'm letting any cats out of the bag. Mm-hmm. But what we did was we recorded there, when, when chimpanzees um, see food items or are anticipating eating food, and bonobos do this as well, um, they make food barks, and... Um, we rec- we recorded their food barks. We would show them different food items. Let's say, you know, a tray of bananas. They love, you know, they love bananas. Show them a tray of bananas. They would make food barks. We'd record. Is that are bananas really like their favorite thing, or is that just a? It's real. It's, it's okay. So it's relative. <laughs> you have to understand. It's very relative. Right. When I, when I first started working at... I'm asking the hard yeah, questions the, today. The really deep, the really deep our, our readers want to know. Do they really love bananas? No, um, they love sugar, salt, and fat. Okay. They, they love that. They crave right. that. And um, especially sugar. You know, not, not unlike us. And mm. so bananas are very sweet, especially the bananas we get. You know, domestic, domesticated bananas are very sweet and full of sugar. And so, yes, they do love them. They prefer grapes to bananas uh, because grapes, again, they're a little sweeter, juicier. Um, so grapes were really the grapes were the treat. This is the big treat. And, this and is if, some pretty controversial stuff. Yeah, we're well, yeah, let me let me step <laughs> up a little. Uh, if we really needed some cooperation, let's say um, you were you know cleaning one of their enclosures and you left something behind like a sponge and you really wanted it back or you know they 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 get these they get blankets to cuddle up with at night and mm. there was a dirty blanket and you're like you don't want to shift everybody out and have them to go into the enclosure to get the blanket so you trade you know, say, I'll give you this whatever food item for Mm. whatever's in there that I want, you know. And sometimes, depending on the individual and what they thought about the situation or their mood that day, um, (laughs) you would bring them, you know, maybe a tiny little bunch of grapes, like five grapes. Hey, Mm. you you go get that blanket for me? Yeah. You know, and they're like, how bad do you want whatever <laughs> that thing is that you want so badly? And um, every now and then you'd have to bust out like a pudding cup or, you know, oh, some Skittles or yeah, something yeah. really intense, <laughs> intensely sugary to get what you wanted. Um, so so what is the food bark about? What's the purpose? Oh, okay. So um, it it is a way to inform other individuals of, of what's happening. So it, all vocal communication is a way to, you know, communicate with your conspecifics and your group members. And so by food barking, they're alerting uh, individuals in their group that they found a food patch or a food source. That's the, um, that's, that's what happens um, in the wild. In captivity, they still have that, that mechanism and that urge to make those, 
those vocalizations. And so they do, and they get really excited. Um, and it sounds, um, it kind of sounds like the stereotypical chimpy sound, I guess, maybe. I, although, I don't, I don't know, it depends on what you think that would be. But it can range from, let's say we would show them something like green beans, and they would be like, <laughs> you know, and then you step it up a little bit, you give them carrots, you know, like, oh, 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 <laughs> you know, and then, you know, if you were to bust out a whole tray of ice cream sandwiches or something, it'd be like, ah, 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 <laughs> you know, and they would all do it and really excitedly and it's really, really loud. And so we would record each individual doing that for different food items, ranging mm. from, like I said, green beans, which was the hardest thing to get a food bark for because they're like, I don't yeah. really want to eat that. Yeah. Like, they kind of Who likes it. green beans? I mean, I do. they're fine on the side. <laughs> As like treat. what you're being presented with is yeah, not that exciting. Uh, and so we would record that, and then um, we took photos of the food items, and then we would play it back to them. Uh, we would play the vocalization to them. The screen would be blank. And then we would give them a choice, a grid of nine different food items, one of which would be uh, uh, the food item that their conspecific was food barking for mm-hmm. present. And then, of course, everything on the screen was randomized. Uh, and to test whether or not they could pick it out, and we'd say, what was that? You know, they, they learned very quickly, oh, you know. And they, w- they were able to do it um, to significance. You know, they weren't accurate 100% of the time, of course, but they were actually able to do it. Was this just their own bark, or could they tell from other barks? Yeah, no, it was everyone in the group. So we would show them. Oh, yeah, oh, for sure. Okay. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I I knew who was talking. I'm using air quotes. (laughs) I I knew who was talking, even if I couldn't see. I would know, you know, oh, that's Bobby. You know, he sounds like he's worked up about something, or he's excited about something. You, You get to know them. Their voices sound differently. Hmm. Um, and so, so you work with, do you work with, um, mostly just bonobos now? Yeah. I only, I only do, uh, research on bonobos, behavioral observations on the Columbus bonobos. And for the, uh, for the listen, well, I guess for me too, because it's, it's my understanding that these are, we have a common ancestor. These are the two primates, chimps and bonobos that are kind of genetically closest related to us yeah. and and um and they're they're both at least genetically equally kind of similar to us um yeah they are they are equally uh similar to us so we did um we we think that there was a common ancestor that gave rise to what ended up being the lineage that eventually split into chimpanzees and bonobos. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, the lineage that gave rise to hominins. So uh, us and our hominin ancestors, basically. And we have no way of knowing really how many other lineages it also gave rise to that failed and, or not failed, (laughs) but, um, you know, uh, went extinct, uh, that are not extant today. And so humans got in there and yeah, cleared all that <laughs> out. Yeah, so they are our the species that is most closely related to us that is still living, and they are more closely related to each other, of course, than they are to us, and we are more closely related to them than you know, obviously, any other species alive. Hmm. And 
So uh, what are what are just some of the um, similarities and differences between chimps and bonobos? Yeah. I, I'm curious because I've yeah, heard of, the, you, you hear about it, but I, I've never yeah. had a chance to talk to a primatologist. So about it. yeah, getting there's 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 some conflicting views. You know, a, a lot of biology is separated into people who are lumpers and people who are splitters, mm-hmm. right? So I think a lot has been made of. Um, you know, people who are splitters perhaps and who are, you know, pointing out these drastic differences in some of their behaviors. Um, I tend to be more of a lumper, I think. I, I mm. see the, you know, the pattern across species. I think that's really interesting. Having worked closely with both species for a significant amount of time, I can say that they are, of course, different in very fundamental ways. I don't think that it's fair to say that chimpanzees are the war lethal rating war party aggressive species and bonobos are all you know the hippie apes make love not war that to me is a false dichotomy it you know they they tend towards those extremes but they're not um they don't fall neatly into each one of those bins basically yeah this is well you see this a lot with i mean we've we've talked about gender differences extensively on, on the program and and it's yeah, it's very exciting yeah. work, um, but but a lot of times it it requires like a bit more digging to find little bits of results, and it's yeah. presented as if there's this huge difference. You yeah, know? yeah, that's a good analogy, a really good analogy. So, just for example, I have seen some pretty horrific wounding in both chimpanzees and bonobos. You know, they 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 bite, they have huge canines, they know how to use them. Um, bonobos can be very aggressive. You know, they, they compete, they fight with each other, both the males and the females do. Um, they have dominance hierarchies, just like the chimpanzees do. The, one of the interesting differences is that within the bonobo dominance hierarchy, there's a lot of overlap in the sexes. So in chimpanzees, every single one of the adult males outranks every single one of the adult females. That's just how it is. Um, But in bonobos, uh, the very highest rank position is often occupied by a female. Hmm. And then maybe there'll be a male and then another female and then a couple males and then a couple females, you know, so it's more interspersed. You know, it seems like uh, with, with, as much as people like to say, you know, bonobos are just having this crazy hippie orgy. Yeah. Um, there's, they're still doing selecting on, on some level, right? They're not just, I, I mean, even, even if you have sexual con- contact, if a female has sexual contact that doesn't, uh, when she's like not fertile or right, something, right. Uh, is she, are, are females um, typically choosy when they are fertile? Are they? Yes. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's That's a really great question. So bonobos exhibit all kinds of sexual behaviors um, outside of their ovulatory period. We call it the periovulatory period or POP. Um, and they engage in sexual encounters with um, the same sex. So females will do what's called Gigi rubbing. Well, they'll, they'll rub the front of their, um, uh, sexual swellings where the clitoris is. They'll rub those together. Uh, females do that. A What's lot. the term for it? Gigi rubbing. Oh, wow. That is genito genital 
scrubbing. How is that not a category on on the porn sites that I? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, I teach the I teach the evolution of human sexuality class, yeah. and I was trying to find a video of a female orgasm from inside showing the cervix moving uh-huh. because it's fascinating, yeah. uh, and it's part of the part of the class that I teach. And apparently, I had no idea. There's this whole subgenre of pornography that gets the camera oh, puts the camera right in there I for mean, the the female climax, and and you know my. You can do it, why wouldn't you? <laughs> I just thought, oh, <laughs> wow, this is this is really interesting. I'm doing this on the university Wi-Fi. Oh God, Lord. Okay, never mind. Right. We'll just not watch. No, that. it is interesting. <laughs> I, I've seen like the X-rays yeah. or MRIs or whatever yeah, of it, yeah. and it is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that's what I was trying to find at the last minute for a class, and it did. It went horribly yeah. wrong. Thankfully, I've used not. that excuse so many times. <laughs> you know, myself. It's for class, but yeah. So, so they use all these sexual encounters, um, and you know, males will males will do what we call penis fencing. They'll uh, they'll rub their penises together. Um, they'll rub their rumps together. Penis and fencing is. I don't know why primates get all the coolest the cool terms. terms. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, well, there's there's like slugs or something that do penis fencing too. I think. Oh, I something didn't know like that. that. Yeah, I'm gonna have yeah. to look that up. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, huh. penis fencing. It's out there. Uh, a lot of animals are doing it. Not humans, so I'm trying to kick it off myself. I'm trying. Yeah, to get you're trying started, to get us trying to get it started. Yeah, it's a tough go society. So is it know? hard to find partners? <laughs> <laughs> it it <laughs> is. Like, yes. So it was, it's just these ridiculous standards that society <laughs> has. And, right. Uh, <laughs> So, so they do all of this non-copulatory yeah. sexual activity. They they do, yeah. And so that that's the uh, that's where the reputation comes from. And you know, to some to some degree, rightfully so. It is quite striking to see a, a pile of bonobos furiously rubbing their genital areas together in all ways possible. Um, they primarily do it uh, to work out. Um, uh, to, to work out a type of cooperation in the context of feeding. That's mm. primarily when it happens, particularly among females. Um, however, we do know that females do become more selective as they uh, reach the periovulatory period, um, arguably more so than female chimpanzees because female chimpanzee choice is constrained um, a lot, some would argue, completely by the males. Status. Well, by the males, because the males right. are all dominant to the females, and they will beat on the females until she complies. Uh, and so we don't see as much sexual coercion. We call it sexual coercion. Right. We don't see as much sexual coercion in bonobos, but it does exist. I've documented it. I've seen it happen. Um, and females... Because they're still... The males are still larger than the they females. They are larger. Right? Yeah, they are okay. definitely larger. And if a younger male with a very with a mother that has very high dominance rank status if he is with her if he's in her you know proximity um then he's he's quite bold and he'll you know that that's the context that i've seen the sexual coercion in my mom says this is okay <laughs> that's interesting just you know go with it it's fine it's fine my mom yeah. says i don't care what you want it's fine <laughs> yeah you know and it's and it's 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 an interesting area of study probably to um a lot of people who aren't um uh academics or into science you know talking so nonchalantly about sexual coercion in a species you know the females they they don't want this to be happening you know but it is strictly about 
sex. And so, you know, they, the male really is looking to inseminate the female, you know, Mm -hmm. they primarily, um, use sex for reproductive and bonobos also, uh, there's, they have a lot of strictly reproductive sex, lots of males, you know, adult males and adult females, um, uh, and her being more choosy when she is in her periovulatory period, she'll seek out usually the dominant male. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so it, it does. It does sound like they're certainly the nicer of the species. I mean, you <laughs> said yourself that there's no bonobos that you have any major yeah, beefs with, yeah, I don't and know, and then not yet. there's know. less coercion. There's there's yeah. uh, and and there's less fighting. Right? There's still. Uh, you know, it's it's a hard thing to measure. Um, I think that the nature of how they forage in the wild is different. Female bonobos. Um, there's a, there's a, I will say that there's a huge range of variation across chimpanzee populations. Um, and it seems it's associated with their local, their ecologies. Um, a lot depends on food resource availability, food abundance. So when, when there's a lot of food and this is, this is true. This is kind of true in general for female animals. Mm -hmm. When there's a lot of food, females are limited most in their reproductive success by uh, the number of calories that they can consume, you know, because it takes so long, particularly, you know, in mammals, primates, to gestate and lactate a baby. It takes a certain amount of time, and you can really only speed that up so much, even if you have a very, you know, steady and rich source of of food. And so um, females are limited by uh, their access to food, and males are limited by their access to fertile wombs, you know, fertile uteruses, mm-hmm. basically, is all that they, uh, that, that they're limited by, um, except in species whereby parental care is needed, where you need both the male and the female to successfully raise the offspring, and then the male reproductive success comes more in line with the females. That's for the birds. Yeah, with lots, yes, lots <laughs> of birds do that. <laughs> Some primate species do that as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Humans do a bit of that. A bit of it, yeah. Some would argue it's necessary for successful mm-hmm. offspring. Doesn't not necessarily the gender of the parents, just you know that there's more than one. Right, yeah. <laughs> just more than one. Um so what what is your work with um bonobos currently? So I look primarily at different behavioral mechanisms and how they contribute to the structure of their society. And then I also look at uh, different uh, hormones in their system and what that can tell us about these mechanisms. So what kind of behavioral mechanisms? I just presented at the American Association of Physical Anthropology, our our annual meeting, I just presented on infant handling behavior um, where individuals will handle infants. (laughs) They'll carry infants around. Um, Effectively, the idea being, you know, what you're looking for is that whether or not they're reducing the burden on the mother. Um, But uh, what we found was that um, all of the adolescent and juveniles um, would carry the infants around, males and females. Um, And there really was no difference between the male and female juveniles. They both would carry the babies around, more like a play-type behavior. Um, But as they reached adolescents, the females do it a lot more than the males do. And um, we also found that their urinary oxytocin, their mean urinary oxytocin levels were correlated with the amount of handling that they were doing. And uh, oxytocin has been linked to 
maternal nurturing behaviors in mammals in the past. And so we're thinking that not only, you know, not only is it perhaps facilitating this behavior in the adolescent females, but the behavior itself is probably important um, to their uh, education on how to properly care for an infant when they do finally become uh, mothers themselves. Mm. So that's one behavioral mechanism. I also look at aggression. Um, I look at harassment behavior where uh, all non-adults, so (laughs) infants, juveniles, adolescents, will pester adult group members uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like watching a little kid pick on like someone older cause they know they can't get away yeah. with it. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. But um, why? Why? Right? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Oh yes. They just do that with like sand. Here's some more. Here's some yeah. more. Here's some more. Can I spit water on you? Let me, run, let me run away really quick cause you're older and I know you're not going to follow me all the way up this tree or, you know, wherever I run off to or to the safety of my mother, you know, if I'm an infant. Um, so they, so I look at harassment behavior as well. Um, I look at the sociosexual behaviors, what we call non-copulatory, uh, sexual behavior in bonobos. Um, I look at that. Uh, what else? How do, uh, how do adults respond to being pestered? Well, it, it kind depends of depends on the pestering, on depends on the personality. The yeah, yeah it, it does. It's Their tolerance seems to be related um, to some degree uh, to their rank status. So um, the youngsters will target the lower ranked individuals more. Um, they're, they're effectively less of a threat in that capacity. Um, but, uh, you know... It, the females will also uh, respond more with what we what we just class as neutral behaviors, like they'll either ignore them or they'll reach out, you know, affectionately, or they'll try to play with them. And the function of the behavior, um, which was put forth by uh, Otto Adang in this really brilliant brilliant study that he did, looking at um, this behavior in chimpanzees at the Arnhem Group um, in the Netherlands a long time ago. Um, and what he found was that the more an individual reacted to the behavior, the more the youngster would do it. I mean, how familiar is that, right? Mm -hmm. The more you respond to it, the more they're going to do it. And he determined that it was more of a mechanism to explore the nature of aggression. Like, okay, is, you know, if I do this, how are you going to react? You know, what about this? What about this type of aggression? And a way to learn how to be aggressive in a really safe type of context outside of strictly play behavior. You know, it's, it's not play. They're not playing they're being they're being little shits to be honest yeah i feel like well i feel like in humans too in any relationship you're gonna push <laughs> buttons from yeah. from time to yeah. time to figure out, figure out what the limits are exactly hmm. exactly but it's it's a, an important part of the youngsters development in chimpanzees and I'm, I'm looking at it right now uh in bonobos as well and finding some really similar results in 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 the uh in the sense of it being important to exploring the nature of aggression, but also um, some significant differences because of the differences in their in their social structures between bonobos and, and chimpanzees. What's um, who's who's better with tools? Who is better with tools? That's an interesting question. We uh, installed an artificial termite mound in the Columbus Zoo enclosure. Uh, in 2011, and we let them habituate to the mound itself because it was, you know, something new in their enclosure. It looks really realistic. You should get online. You can see a picture of it. Termite, so the- if you watch like a 
Planet Earth or some something like I used to watch a show at Orangutan Island on Animal Planet, and termite mounds are are this very sought after thing in in uh, in nature to primates, right? They, yes, these, an important source delicious, of protein. Yeah. yeah, very important source of protein. And chimpanzees are really prolific tool users in general, and they're really good at fishing for termites um, in their habitat. Uh, they'll you know fashion you know sticks and they'll modify the ends of them to make them, you know, a particular way. Um, so they have different sticks for poking in the ground and then smelling whether or not they've come across a mound or if they're close to a mound. And then they'll make a different stick that's really good at uh, drawing out as many as possible. They're good at eating them without getting bit because <laughs> most of those uh, insects uh, have pinchers that can bite them. They're really good at oh, it. Oh, yeah. I never thought about that. Oh, yeah. The There's thing this hilarious... that you're putting in your mouth has yeah. mouths themselves <laughs> that bite your mouth. When they're alive, that's what happens. <laughs> Little mouths in your mouth. Exactly. There's a pretty hilarious video of Richard Wrangham um, Fishing at a termite mound, you know, demonstrating it for the camera and like swooping it into his mouth and then getting bit and 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 bleeding and saying, yeah, well, you know, they're better at it than I am, obviously, because mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't get bit as often. But we installed an artificial one that looked so real, so many. I would listen to the public walk by and they would say things like, "I wonder, if, I wonder why that that ant hill. Oh my god." I wonder if we should tell them they know that anthill's in there because <laughs> it was really very realistic yeah. looking. Um, and so we we put it in. We let them habituate to its presence. They started ignoring it, you know, almost right away. And then one day we um, baited it, meaning that there are these little holes um, where we would put uh, these capped PVC tubes uh, on the inside of the mound. You could, there was a little trap door in the back you could you could access and screw in these little wells for them and we put you know like mashed up berries or like almond butter or you know different healthy foods uh and uh just waited to see what happened and they were remarkably good at it remarkably good at it on the very first day the very first trial um an individual happened to walk by smelled it noticed that there was a smell coming from it that was different and climbed up a tree grabbed a giant branch modified it almost perfectly started fishing and she had never been exposed before she had never Mm. done it before never seen any other she now disclaimer um she had never seen any other animals doing um you know like a simulated termite fishing but in captivity you know bonobos and and chimps and you know all primates they they watch humans use tools all day long Mm. now you know whether whether or not you know mopping is like similar enough to fishing for termites i don't know you know they but they understand the concept of like holding something in your hand and it you know ha- having a function or being of use having a utility that that kind of thing um but we you know we we argued that it was a novel situation for her and for most of them and they were really good and you know once one of them does it they're really good at watching and and learning from each other uh, even if it's from a distance is there a gender difference yeah we did find that the females um, learned more quickly than the males did and we found that effect is also found um, in a couple other species of primates the idea being that uh, females um, are more uh, you know, having a, a good protein source is really important to maintain gestation and lactation. They also have youngsters and that are very, um, 
heavy and you know they they expend a lot more energy caring for their for their infants and their offspring um, than males do um, and so it's I would say maybe easier isn't the best word but you know, it's certainly these guys have more time out in their hands to yeah. go and beat each other up. And well, and well, and the males hunt more than the females do. Mm-hmm. So, male chimpanzees will hunt um, to get their protein source uh, more than females will. Although, although both sexes and will hunt off. and and to show off, yeah. uh, both sexes will hunt and both sexes will termite fish. Females do it a little bit more, and we saw the same thing in our group of bonobos. So, when you mentioned that um, that they 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 might. You know, potentially they see humans using tools and pick up on things. So what what kind of, um, do you do any theory of mind work? Oh, that's or a really good question. I have um, at the Chimp Lab, at the Chimp Center at Ohio State, we did a really interesting theory of mind study where... Um, and, and can you, how do you describe theory of theory mind? Theory of mind. So it's knowing what someone else knows. Mm-hmm. Having a sense that you either know something that, Having a uh, no, theory of mind is knowing someone else's knowledge state. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's not something we're born with. It's something that develops. We don't really hit get it until we're about three years old. Um, and yeah, like the I think the the classic. There's like a Bob and Sue in a room or something like that, yeah. and Sue leaves and. And Bob hides her toy under the couch or something right. like that, and then, and then you ask a kid if when Sue comes in, where is she going to look for the toy? But she wouldn't be able to know where right. to look. But right. so you have to be able to understand that she wouldn't know where to look, right. and that doesn't start happening until around the age of three. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, and so um, it's a notoriously hard thing to test in primates because you can't ask them, "Hey, mm-hmm. where's?" Where's Bobby gonna look? Yeah, you know, that, that that's a little bit that's a little bit sophisticated. I don't think it's impossible. I just don't think we've quite been able to. Well, when you brought up food barking, it yeah. reminded me of a study that I heard about where they would. Um, I, how did I forget to turn my phone off? I'm a professional. Um, when you were, so it was something where they would have. Um, the, the primates, I forget what species they were, they would have them behind a glass and they would have, um, it, it was about like a, uh, their ability to measure intention. So like a dog, uh-huh. a dog needs to understand whether you kicked it or accidentally stepped on it. Oh, right. Sure. Um, and, and it was, they had someone come in with like a plate full of food or something like that. And if they just took this plate full of treats or whatever and, and just whipped it, <laughs> yeah. like the primates would just go completely nuts and they're banging on the windows and, and, and all upset about this. And, but if instead there was the plate already out there in, in the, lab research tried to kind of pretend like they just accidentally bumped this over over and and kept walking or whatever they would all all the primates would would keep it down and keep it it'd be like their secret like oh once we get out there we can he doesn't realize that he dropped all that food that we're able to get that that's interesting i'm not familiar with that study and one thing that strikes me as kind of odd maybe is that so if he threw the food intentionally 
angrily, perhaps even? Like, looked at the primates and then, it, th- like, threw it away. Like, like threw it so that they wouldn't, so be, they able wouldn't to, be able to get it. Oh, so something. they wouldn't be able to yeah, get it yeah. later. Yeah. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. The... Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar I wish with I that was, one. Yeah. I wish I knew. I heard Robert Sapolsky talking about yeah, it. I, yeah, yeah. I, and it wasn't, I know it wasn't I'm his not study. Surpri- it's I'm not, not surprising. I'm not good at yeah. citing things. But, um. Oh, you know, I'm probably should be better <laughs> as well. Um, it, it's not surprising that they're, that they're capable of, of feeling that for sure. Um, but the study we did um, to get at theory of mind, um, and I'm sort of out of the loop of what's going on and and non-human primate psychology research. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if something's been done similar since. But what we did was we had a uh, naive individual um, shut inside who couldn't see anything that was going on outside. And then we had a target individual who could see everything. And what we were trying to test was whether or not our target individual would give the naive individual any kind of sign about whether or not something was going to happen. And during some of the trials, the naive individual wasn't naive. They could see everything just like the target individual. And then in, uh, in the, uh, that, the, that's the control setting. And then in the test setting, they were truly naive, couldn't see what was going on. And we did find that the target individual would only warn or um, gesture to or you know make sounds at the naive individual when they were in the naive mm. test condition, not when they could also see what was going on. And that was the closest that I think we, we ever could come to saying, okay, they know, you know, Sarah knew that Kermit couldn't see what was going on. Right, right. You know, and so when the door would open, she would say, hmm, don't come out or, you know, she would give, she would give him signs, you know, that were very obvious versus when he was sitting out there with her, she didn't, you know, there's no reason to No, there's no reason to. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. It was very interesting. And, you know, and just being around them, you, it's notoriously hard to demonstrate, but they absolutely have a theory of mind. They know when you know things and when you don't know things, you know, it's just very hard to test, you know, kind of definitively, to get at that, but it doesn't take long, you know, being in their presence to, to know that. Hmm. And, uh, speaking of which, are you, I saw something in your biography where I think, are you traveling somewhere to study bonobos in the wild? My advisor, Dr. Francis White has been, um, studying bonobos in the wild for 30 some years now. And she has an amazing field site in the democratic Republic of Congo in the Lamako forest, um, where she's been watching them, um, off and on, you know, since the eighties and, um, the hope, the dream is to, uh, to get there mm-hmm. hopefully, uh, sooner rather than later. Um, it's just been really difficult, uh, over the years off and on for different reasons, sometimes funding, sometimes it's not, um, as safe. Sometimes we, you know, the, the ground support isn't, um, what's necessary there. It's a very, very, very difficult place to do field work. Um, and the animals have moved from their original location um, because I think I think because of um, he, some human population pressure, um, and so now it's even more difficult to go in and to and to study them. But that is the hope. That is you know the future I'm, uh, of my of my research. I hope. 
So why, uh, what benefits um, are there to studying um, primates in captivity? Where Are there just, you know, you talk about having some of these touch screens and stuff like yeah. that, where this, I mean, I suppose you could bring a touch screen with the, but then it kind of eliminates the point if you're not interfering. Oh, uh, to do the kind of work that was done at the chimp lab, um, you know, it, it wasn't just that, you know, we, gave them a touch screen and they started doing it. They had to be trained how right. to use it, you know, and that it was like something that could be, you know, you know, you would get a reward. And let me just say, you can't make a primate work, you know, like do, do the, the, the study that you want them to do if they don't want to do it. I mean, perhaps maybe there are people out there that have ways that are absolutely inhumane and cruel. I don't know anything about that, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, all of all of the chimps um, at our lab, they would come in and interact with the touch frame or interact with us or do the tool task or whatever we were doing because they really wanted to. It was stimulating to them. They found it interesting. They liked the one-on-one uh, contact. We did lots of grooming. You know, they would get a treat, that sort of thing. And so... Um, it's all about that pudding. It is all about the pudding. Uh, so, so, I mean, sometimes you're kind of like teaching them a currency... Yeah. essentially right and then paying them to <laughs> oh for sure for sure yeah yeah they they were and then sometimes it was not worth it you could have brought out a vat of pudding and if they don't want to if they didn't feel like doing it they didn't feel like doing it there's nothing you could do about it how how quick do they pick up on on understanding oh okay i follow these directions and then i get a treat. Do they pick that up very, very quickly? Well, they would get rewarded regardless <laughs> of, um, you know, whether or not they were doing a particular task correctly per mm. se. So it, it did kind of depend on the task, you know. So uh, that's the trouble with kids yeah. these days. That's, <laughs> <laughs> you know. There, there, there's no grades anymore. It's just all stars and pants. Yeah, that's the right. Everybody we're, we're making these a, chimps soft. A hundred percent. Yes, good job. Use your trophy for participating. Take it outside and share it if you want. Uh, yeah. So some of the tasks were more difficult for the individuals than others. Some of them were really good at doing the touch frame stuff. Some of them were much better at doing the tool tasks. It just kind of depended, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't take them any time whatsoever to learn. They're like, Hey, come in here, come into this room. Look, we set up this game. Do you want to play it? And then to, you know, it's, it's always a very obvious game, right? You know, we, the, the point is to get at what they know how to do, mm-hmm. not necessarily what you can teach them to do. That's, that's not, it's inter- it's it is interesting what they what they're capable of learning, you know, from a human. But what we found most or more interesting is what they already know how to do, just implicitly. Mm. You know, what what is a chimpanzee born with? You know, the capacity of knowing. You know, mm-hmm. you know how hmm. how can we measure that? Um, and so we didn't do a lot of tasks that required them to actually learn how to. Um, to learn the mechanics of it, I guess, if you will. I, was that your question? I'm not quite yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, that answers it, just how how fast they could pick up on. Yeah. But you were trying to study what was innate. Yeah, um, more of. so. So uh, as we're wrapping up here, one, I want to um, encourage my listeners, if you go on to the herewearepodcast.com website, I'll have a link there for Chimp Haven and also the Non-Human Rights Project. And so, so you can look into that. Who doesn't want to help uh, 
who doesn't want to help chimps? Are, are you, I mean, as a primatologist, you must be pretty um, concerned about human influence um, and um, a, a lot of these a lot of these places, like you said, in uh, the Congo or whatever, them yeah. being pushed out. Do you think that humans are becoming a, a more and more aware and are starting to kind of reverse that trend? Or uh, are, are you You're gonna have pretty to have pessimistic me back. about it? <laughs> You're yeah, going to yeah. have to have me back. That, that's one. fine. That's, uh, uh, well, Unfortunately, you know, we, we, we really need... Um, we really need to start taking some of what's happening to our megafauna seriously, or we're going to have mass extinctions and an extinction spasm that'll go down the food chain. And we're going to have to pay attention eventually. And what a shame if we don't save some of the most charismatic and intriguing species that are still around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, uh, I feel like, um, a thousand or, 10,000 years from now, aliens are going to discover our planet and then they're going to find our hard drives and then they're going to like watch Animal Planet and Life and wonder the how, hell happened here? how we lost all this amazing yeah. paradise and then they'll see like the Kardashians and they'll get it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, hopefully people are, I, I feel like people are yeah. becoming more aware, just probably not fast enough. Well, awareness is great. It is where you start, but really action is what, mm-hmm. what gets the job done. And, uh, you know, there's, I, I, it's hard on the one hand to advocate for animals when there's so much human suffering, mm-hmm. you know, and until we really fully address, you know, the world's problems on that scale, I just don't see any hope for. Well, what do you think your kind of work again this is probably a long conversation and and you can take whatever (laughs) time you want uh with it but what do you think how do you think your work and in in the work of primatologists doing similar Mm -hmm. studies how how do you think this helps um the human condition how it helps our understanding of of the way our minds work yeah, that is a great question. I won't. I won't be super long winded about it because uh, I know you need to wrap up and go to your show. Oh, I'm, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in no hurry, so so take your I time. I think that um, the work that I th- I think the work that I do, particularly, and kind of getting back to your question about why it's important to study them in captivity, um, part of the reason why I think uh, in bonobos in particular, because given how difficult it is to watch them in, in the wild the level of detail that I can record their behavior and understand what's happening is, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, they're all right there in front of you. Certain things are controlled for that aren't controlled in the wild, like their food sources. They always have the same amount of food, you know, so that is taken out of the equation. Um, you know, individuals leaving the group and coming into the group, unless there's a death, of course, you know, that's also a controlled situation. So we have the opportunity to really, study certain things in really fine detail. In Without gen- variables yeah. like starvation. <laughs> you know, yeah. and like predators and right. natural disasters and just, you know, individuals disappearing, um, which uh, my counterparts in the wild, you know, they do amazing work. I tip my hats to them, of course. Hopefully we'll join them soon. Um, but in general, I think that studying primates is so important to understanding 
humanity because we are primates. We are primates, everybody. We are primates, everyone. <laughs> we haven't brought that up yet. We are primates. <laughs> and, you know, as much as we like to think that we are, you know, so much more sophisticated and above our, you know, animal brethren. Right. Um, we, we are animals. We are primates. And yeah. a remarkable amount of our behavior can be distilled into, you know, distilled down into, you know, things that we see in a whole range of species, not even just primates. And so by understanding the conditions and the context that influence these different behavioral mechanisms, I think can shed light on why we see certain things happening in humans. You know, what our deep evolutionary roots of those behaviors are, you know, especially if they're undesirable, things like warfare and aggression, Mm. you know, um, or, you know, even positive things like cooperation and food sharing. You know, those are important features of um being human and i think that by studying primates we can get a sense of you know the very deep-seated nature of it yeah i mean i I think that it can it helps understand me why i do this silly uh as i'm (laughs) off to go and do my show and do my little attention getting uh monkey dance on stage I, i think I think a lot of a lot of these things that seem very complicated um, can be boiled down quite. You easily. You know what I always say? I always say all behaviors can be boiled down to either fighting or fucking. <laughs> yeah, that's and it's very very true. You know, they're doing it either to fight or to fuck, and they're only fighting to get to the fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I've fought with a few comedians before, but mostly yeah. I just try to get laid after shows. So. <laughs> I, I do find that to be true. Well, thank you very much, Clary Boos. And um, thank you, uh, listeners, for being curious as usual. And again, you can always go to the herewearepodcast.com uh, Here website to learn more. And I will talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Quick reminder to please check out the new Twitter account, the Here We Are podcast Twitter account, at Here We Are. I would love for you to follow it. I'm hoping to make your Twitter feed more stimulating. It's why I create. I kind of created it for myself, just so um, rather than wasting tons of time, and I follow a ridiculous number of people on my regular account, at Shane Comedy, and waste way too much time, I'm hoping uh, to instead use my Twitter account to um, look at more stimulating stuff, which I hope will help my research and well-being and everything else. And so check it out at Here We Are Pod next week on the program. Really cool episode. Uh, you know, I, I try to mix things up and get a as wide a variety of subjects um, as I as I can. Uh, well, that's sort of true. I guess. Still, life science stuff, things applying to uh, our personal lives and how our minds work. You get it. You've been listening to the show. Next week on the program, I have a hacker on the program. Um, he wrote a book, Cyber Fraud, The Web of Lies. He actually hacked into the FBI. He recorded some of their phone calls to, and and then went and turned himself into uh, to raise awareness to a problem that he was trying to tell them about, about um, a problem with Google Maps and and ads on there and, and a lot of fraud using um, Google Maps that he was once a part of and then was trying to uh, 
shine a, a spotlight on on uh, some of the shady behavior that businesses are doing, or not even businesses, scammers are doing to screw over small businesses. Uh, really cool, interesting episode. I actually recorded it um, quite a while ago. I think it was like a year ago or something like that. Maybe not that long ago. But um, at the time, his book was... Uh, had had been out for a few months and we recorded it and then um the government told him he could no longer sell his book um because it it was uh leaking out sensitive information and so he had to revamp a few things but we talked pretty openly about everything on the podcast and really interesting and unique and different i think you guys are going to dig it so make sure and tune in next week oh and, of course, thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. You guys that did, you guys that are still listening now, you're my favorites. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. <laughs> One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a I'm bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich- I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my- <laughs> <laughs>